Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Sean Stevenson. Sean is a Senior Vice President for Operations with Genesis Healthcare and responsible for Genesis's 110 skilled nursing facilities in New England. Sean is also an alumnus of the University of New Hampshire and holds a degree in health management and policy, which is, of course, my department. So very excited to have Sean on for this month's guest. In this interview, Sean talks about his journey in the long-term care field and all the rewards and challenges that it presents. Sean and I both share the opinion that the long-term care field is underappreciated for the opportunity it represents to young people who are interested in a meaningful career in healthcare. The full interview runs about 90 minutes. I've produced an abridged version that runs about an hour. This is the abridged version. If you'd like to listen to the full-length version, please see our website, healthleaderforge.org, for the link. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Sean Stevenson. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Sean, you're an alumnus of the program I teach in, Health Management and Policy, at the University of New Hampshire. So what drew you to UNH, and specifically, what drew you to HMP? I did a tour, and and I was really into the um, leadership majors, and I looked at it and said, you know, what's this health management and and policy thing, and that at the time I was thinking actually managed care. You know, managed okay. care was, sure, was was just starting to get right? there, yeah, and it yeah. was like you know Harvard and mm-hmm. Pilgrim and Tufts mm-hmm. and all all these you know, these programs. And I thought that sounds kind of kind of sexy, and mm-hmm. you know what that would bring as far as opportunity. And I said, all right, I'm going to apply for this, and that's it. I started UNH fall of '92. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you came to HMP, into HMP, all right. Right away, so right away, got right pro- in. So did the program, how did you get interested in, you didn't, I, I, I don't know, did you go directly into long-term care or did you do managed care after all? So so this is funny, I'm just going to be, as I always am, I'm just going to be straight up. So I had no interest in <laughs> long-term care yeah. when I was a sophomore at, at at the time, I was told, you know, at the end of your junior year, you're going to have to have to do an internship and all that. And I said, okay. And I, I, at, at the time, I was thinking managed care the whole way and was really set on that. And I went to one of the optional nights to hear about some um, different sectors. And there was one gentleman who talked a little bit about long-term care, and I was kind of, yeah, that's interesting. That's not exactly what I thought. But at the time, I was taking a general, a, you know, whatever they call them, a, a discovery, um, a gen ed, gen ed or whatever, kind of, yeah. um, which was intro to social work. Okay. So I was taking this class, and this is where I joke around, and I'm just going to speak the truth. There was a actual requirement to volunteer somewhere for eight hours as a part of passing the class in social work. Now, um, this professor at the time had the handouts of everything and there was this sort of lottery and everything. So long story short, I missed class when they handed it out because I had had a really, really fun night at UNH Uh the night before. And I missed class and I came back in the class and he said Sean you have the only one left that nobody wanted and I think it speaks volumes still to I think why I've been spending so much time at UNH and talking to juniors and seniors and really letting them know what this really is and what the opportunities are and and I'm I'm taking a lot of pride in that so I got this 215 bed County Nursing Home, Riverside Rest Home with the gentleman Ray Bauer, who, and it's in Dover, Mm -hmm. and I had to volunteer there. And so I went in, first day, miserable. I had this sort of like 
stereotype in my head. And I met with the first thing I did was meet with the administrator. And he was immediately, and I think that's me today, just had this extraordinary amount of pride and energy and and just passion about the industry and and where it's going and everything it offers. And he sat with me as a part of my volunteer and it was probably about an hour just hearing about that. And then he took me on this tour and then he had me volunteer for a little bit with uh, recreation and activities. And then I went and I spent some time with nursing and he convinced me to come back even over and above, you know, what was required for the class. And I ended up never stopping and I just volunteered there for the remaining three years at UNH and he was my inspiration and got me excited about the business and I just never looked back. So what was it that, you know, during those initial eight hours that, you know, bit you that, that created the bug in you to want to I think, come back and keep I going? Think, I think what it really was was obviously the leadership aspect as I went into one of his morning meetings and saw he was at the end of the table and he had all of his department heads and everybody had different responsibilities and he was asking and he was directing and challenging and helping, advising. And then just with the walking around and meeting with staff and talking to residents and really seeing his relationships and Ultimately, it sounds corny, but I've always just said that it's it's the it's the excitement and the diversity of every hour, but at the same time, you truly go home and feel that you're actually helping people and that you're really making a difference and in people's lives and life and death and quality of life and and um, quality at the end of life and really just making a difference. And at the same time, if you do well and you're good at it, you can make a pretty damn good living on it too. So. Those are not two nice, uh, a nice combination. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you graduated. Uh, did you do your internship with? I with, did. Uh, at Dover? I okay. did. Nice. I did. Absolutely. And so you graduated and what were, where did you head, you know, out of, out of uh, school? Right, right. Yeah. So I always remember with my buddies and everything in the, um, uh, Lambda Chi Alpha there at UNH in the fraternity house. And we made this, we had this whole wall because back then everything wasn't on computer yet. You know, we all mailed in your resumes and you waited for that letter if you're going to get an interview or a phone call. And so we had this whole wall that we called the uh, the wall of shame where it was just all, all the denials and the, <laughs> sorry, you know, we're not hiring right now. We're not interested. And I was just relentless and just went after every single nursing home in New Hampshire that I could find and to just to give me any opportunity just to get my foot in the door. And so I um, nailed a great gig right after graduation with a 150 bed facility to be their business office manager is how I got in. So that was that was May of 1995. I, I think I took off maybe three days after graduation and jumped right in. Okay. Yeah. So uh, where was that? That was in um, here in Bedford, right okay. down the street, All right. which what are the odds is now a um, Genesis facility. As, At the time it wasn't. Okay. But it was, uh, yeah. So I. So business manager, um, what, what was that role? Yeah. What's so, role? so this was, this was also a uh, 150 bed facility. So you were basically responsible for cash collections billing, collecting, and also you ran the um, the resident bank. So nursing cool. homes are actually required to have a an actual bank for, for them so they can come in and not have to leave the building, but they can come in, they can deposit money, it has to earn interest, and they, they can take out cash and they can deposit cash and then in the business office, we could actually write checks for them and help pay their bills out of, out of, out of their account. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, so it was great. So I got the whole resident interaction. I got the family interaction for, you know, new admissions. I would, I also was in charge of overseeing 
human resources. So they did payroll. So I was able to get in with staff and payroll and benefits. And I just learned that whole kind of back office Mm -hmm. routine right away, which was really cool. And I had no idea what I was doing. I (laughs) never managed anybody. And I had a a department of uh, three people and just just jumped in. So who... So you were a traditional student, like you were 22 at this point, thereabouts? Yeah. So that's a lot of responsibility for a 22, person, right? right? Yeah. So it was. were you mentored by the administrator? Yeah. So I, I think that was a big part of it, why I actually got the job. Probably really couldn't say that now, that he was discriminating or something based on my age and everything else. But I think he was a younger administrator. He was probably 25 or 26. That was his first building as an administrator. And I think he felt, you know, I, I got to give this guy a chance, just like somebody gave me a chance. And, nice. and at the time he was so young, I look back and I wonder if it was sort of the blind leading the blind, but <laughs> we, you know, we did it together and I'm still in touch with him. And he's a friend of mine today. And he's at a different building. He's running a county home now, but he's, really good man and always grateful that he gave me the chance. Was that an independent facility or was that a part of a chain? No, it it was a small New Hampshire, very, very popular New Hampshire chain at the time, McCurley Healthcare, McCurley's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which, um, Forrest McCurley passed away years ago, but Forrest was a big, big supporter of, um, UNH Mm -hmm. and the HMP program. And, um, and, also Lambda Chi Alpha. He was a uh, Lambda Chi Alpha brother. So he helped me to get the interview to get this job. Okay. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. So so from the business office, uh, at what point did you move into leadership? So when, so in order to become a, a administrator, you have to go through an AIT and you an do. administrator in training. So, so when did you take your take responsibility for your first facility. When did you become a, the right. administrator in charge instead of the administrator in training? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so I, I always remember when I when I got the job, I had finished my my training. I took my boards and passed. And there was this building that was in Claremont, New Hampshire, and so it was out there. Yeah, I lived in Concord with my wife and. I got the offer and it was really funny because it was one of those, I was so excited to have my first building. And I remember, so the guy called, he said, Sean, I have a building for you, Claremont, New Hampshire. I think it's a good step. I said, I'll take it. I didn't even wait to hear what the salary was. I didn't even negotiate or anything. I was so excited to have my first building. And he says, well, shouldn't I tell you what it pays first and all these, all these things. And I, and I remember my wife and I just jumping around and um, and we were celebrating. So we went to this really fancy dinner at um, the ninety nine. All right, <laughs> that was that was it. Let's go. Yeah. You know, yeah. now we're now we're big spenders. Let's do it. So we did that, and um, I was actually twenty twenty four years old. Wow, I was twenty four years old, and um, I always laugh because my father got me for graduation. This is when you still had those like like the real wood leather briefcase with the clips that opened and everything. And so he gave me this briefcase. It was his father's and then it was his and then he gave it to me. Nice. And I remember going to Claremont and I walked in and I had my briefcase with me and it was empty because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And so, I mean, maybe I had a pen in it and maybe like an apple or something and that was it. And, and so I walked in and my director of nursing was 66 years old and I was 24. 24. Okay. And I was her new boss. Yeah. I always remember that. Yeah. And she was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Taught me so much about the business. That's a, you know, um, uh, I mean, I, I didn't know much about long-term care coming out of the military. We were chatting before. So my career prior to coming to UNH was in the military, you know, but one of the things that has impressed me about the opportunities in long-term care is that they're similar. They're the most similar in my mind to the level of responsibility that a young person gets going into the military. Just, I mean, at 24, you are in charge of right, this right, right. facility. How many beds was that? This really? was, um, 68 beds. Okay. So 68 bed facility. Yeah. 
So you're responsible for the lives of 68 people. Absolutely. At 24 years old. Yes. And this was a, this was in a different reimbursement time where we were getting much better Medicare reimbursement. And so this building had a in-wall oxygen, in-wall suctioning, and had a whole entire ventilator unit, which was basically like almost like a med surge unit at a hospital. It had complex trachs, complex ventilators. People were either on ventilators there and living there long-term care, and we're going to be on a vent for the rest of their life. Or people were also weaned off a vent and then actually went home. And it was crazy complicated. And I remember, I can't believe that I'm actually responsible in overseeing this place because it, it was a little, at the time, it was very overwhelming. <laughs> how many staff, roughly? Typically, for, you know, it's funny really with how it works out. It's typically that normally around what you have for census. I don't know why it always works out that way, okay. but that's usually about what you have for staff. So I had about probably, probably 70, 75 staff there. Well, so in charge of 68 patients, um, 75 staff, you're 24 years old. Right. So what was that like? Well, it was one of those, I think you, um, you learn by, by experience, you learn yeah. by mistakes, yeah. you learn the hard way. And I think by probably my biggest thing when I look back on it was, and I still remember this now today, is that as a new leader, you tend to lean towards, you want everybody to like you. You want to be liked. You know, and, and I think as, as I learned that, that just with the odds, if everybody, a hundred percent of the people working in that building like you, then you're not doing everything that you're supposed to be doing as the leader. And I tell a lot of our young administrators that now to say, not everybody is going to like you, right? But that as long as everybody respects you and that you are constantly trying to breed loyalty, that's that's what you want to get to. I think I kind of learned that the hard way in the beginning mm -hmm. where not enough coaching and development and not enough accountability to poor performers and, you know, mediocrity and all that. I think it was more just being popular and being liked. So not enough holding holding those people responsible for yeah. not performing at the level they should be. Absolutely. But that'd be hard. I mean, you're 24, you're probably one of the youngest people in those. the building, right? Absolutely. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. That was a big part of it. Yeah. That was a big part of it. How, did, how would you, I mean, how should young people going into that role establish credibility? I mean, especially, right. I mean, you're a couple of the young folks that you took, you know, Ashley and Monica are going right. to be right. trying to do that and, That's right. you know, a year That's from right. now. You know, it's funny. So a part of it, and I'm sure there's all kinds of debate and all kinds of theories about this. And um, I've just seen this in my experience. And I'm sure that there's exceptions. I always look at, I feel that there are some areas that you can't teach. You know, you have it or you don't. And I think that's that's really what we figured out, even with like a Monica say, like, like Ashley, or even with these interns, I think that we picked for this summer and, and um, that there are, there's confidence and there's um, transparency and candor and, and there's things that things like energy and passion. And, you know, it, it's a difficult area to try to get people to see that and actually implement that. And, and sometimes I think it's kind of how you're wired and who you are. But my, my biggest thing is, is for the younger leaders is one is don't get a big head. Always, always stay humble. You have to always stay humble and that it's really around clarity of expectations. People want to know what's expected of them. That right there is going to help you to get respect. It is going to help to breed loyalty. If people know what's always expected of them, that helps. If they're 
always guessing and I don't know if I'm doing the right things. I don't know, you know, all that. That's something I figured out, I think, early is that people just want to know what they have to be doing in order to be doing a good job. And then recognizing them for it a lot when they do it. And then um, coaching and developing timely when they're not doing it. And I think that that's what people want. And those who I've seen through the years who are poor performers um, or just not maybe in the right fit or in the right job for them, they they start to figure that out. It's not going to work for me here. And then they move on, yeah. I think. So. so you were a – so let's take it back to Claremont. So you were a young, young person in Claremont working uh, at your first facility, first building. How long were you there for? So the company was Integrated Health Services, IHS, and they were a multi-state large large corporation. They had three facilities in New Hampshire, Claremont, Manchester, and Derry, New Hampshire. And they I was at Claremont, I want to say for probably a probably about a year and a half. I really felt very loyal to the company. They had given me my AIT. They had given me my first building. And at the same time, I was from Derry. I was really young and married and wanted kind of like a nightlife and other things. And Claremont's a small town for people. Claremont's a small town. People from, not from New Hampshire. <laughs> we lived in Concord and my wife was working oh, okay. for a, um, funny, she was actually working for an HMO okay. at the time. And so Manchester opened up and I called my boss immediately and I said, this is, this is perfect for me. And he said, absolutely. You know, you've earned it and had done a good job at Claremont. So then I went over to the Manchester facility, ran that for a while. And then Derry opened up and I kind of presented this idea at the time to my boss, knowing I wanted to get to that next level. And I had started to kind of like like to figure out early on that I can get buildings exactly where we want them. And then I'm kind of ready for the next building to help fix it and kind of turn it around and get it to a better place. And so Derry was having all, all of these challenges at the time. I said, well, it's the same company. Why don't I go to Derry and I'll help us out? And I said, but I have an idea for you because I've already run Claremont and I've already run Manchester. Why don't I come over and run Derry, but have me supervise those two administrators and I'll just take care of New Hampshire for you. And they thought that was interesting and said, you know what, that that makes sense because my boss was in, he was out of state and had to travel to come up to New Hampshire. And I said, you know, it's I'll still report to you, but let me let me cover New Hampshire. I know, you know. Intimately know the building. Well, the buildings the three, right? and the markets yeah. inside and out. I know you know, the hospital players, I know the community, I know, I know the staff, I know the department heads and let's do that. So they said, all right, well, let's do it. So let's go wow. for it. Okay. So that's when I first dipped in, into multiple facility management. Well, what was that like stepping up to that level then? Interesting. It a, was that's a fairly it was, good distance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it, but it, I really enjoyed the, just being able to kind of mix it up as much as I really enjoyed running a building, it's nice to be able to say Wednesdays or Thursdays, I'm going to be go, I'm, I, I won't be here and I'll be visiting my other building. And it was kind of nice just to get, kind of mix it up a little bit and get some time and, and, um, and just help, help the administrator to kind of think through some of the challenges they were having and problem solve and, and all that, and and still maintain the relationships I had already built when I was there, and that was kind of cool to be able to go back and and see people. And the hard part, and that's what I learned early, was that not everybody is the same administrator that you are, mm-hmm. and so, but that doesn't mean that your way is the only way. Right, your way is is the right way. You know, that, that doesn't mean that people have different leadership styles. And I had to open myself up to that. And I also had to 
put away my own pride around what I had accomplished in those buildings and still trying to feel like they were my buildings because they weren't anymore. So I had to really kind of let that administrator run, run his or her building and let them feel empowered. And I was more kind of almost kind of like a consultant role to help them get through some things. Yeah. So you said you kind of, it sounds like you'd kind of developed a knack for making improvements and kind of seeing what needed to be done. How yeah. did you, how did that come about? Because not everybody's going to develop that. Why do you think you were able to build that skill set? Yeah, I think I threw, I think a lot, honestly, some things I learned um, at UNH. There was at, at this time, I was younger and I was working through also my master's program and doing that at night and doing, doing the online thing. I was uh, New Hampshire College at the time and, and was doing all that. I was learning a lot from there and I was into this real, just really looking at sort of motivational leadership books. I was doing a lot of reading and trying to, trying to get some good ideas from that. And at the same time, I think it was just more my sort of just, my approach is sort of this more just kind of like street smart piece and just trying, trying, trying to keep it simple. Don't make everything so, so complicated overanalyze everything and take so long to make decisions and make plans. And I really just tried to simplify it to get into almost, it's what I call just kind of like the API, right? It is let's assess what's going on here. Let's make a plan, implement the plan, and then let's evaluate it and see if it's working. And I still use that today and also um, learn from just what my bosses and what my mentors had taught me about simple things like begin with the end in mind. What do you see here when you're finished and you fixed it? What do you see in every department that it's really running at its top, at its highest level? What's your vision for that? And say, okay, now let's back up and let's make our plan and how we're going to accomplish that. Let's get there. And I think in the end, there's also this sort of this kind of, I'm laughing because people, we kind of, we make fun of ourselves and people make fun of me at work and, and it's just kind of what you do, you know, to have a little bit of a fun environment is, it, it, it's also a little bit of my sort of my type A personality where I, I don't let anything go and I make sure that every box gets checked and I always make sure that we cross the finish line. Mm-hmm. And that things aren't just going to linger and aren't going to take too long. And we're going to do it right, but let's keep moving. Let's keep progressing. So your self-described type A, that must have been yeah. really hard to let go. Uh, what you were describing a minute ago about letting the administrators run Very the buildings much. in their own ways. It still is every day. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So how do you how do you get over that? Well, I, what, I have figured out, and I think I did it as... As an administrator, you don't, you can build your team, you know, with people who do have at least kind of close to similar values and what I think is important. So I do try to build that team where I can look around the room and say, this is the team. These guys get it. I always remember when I was running buildings, when I was at Claremont. Manchester, and I definitely remember Derry because I left there where it was just at its highest level. I remember looking around the room and going, I could go on like a three-month medical leave or, or a vacation, and this building would absolutely completely run itself. That's when I always knew that I was ready to take on the next building or take on a new role because of that team that I built. So you were supervising three facilities in New Hampshire for IHS. Mm-hmm. How long were you with IHS? So that would have been uh, 97 to 2002. Okay. So five years with IHS. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and then you moved over to Harborside Healthcare. Harborside Healthcare, yeah. Okay, in 2002. And, and so what was the role that you took on there? So that was my first regional vice president role. That and that really was. I would I would no longer be running my own building. I would just have buildings administrators reporting to me, and I didn't have to run a building at the same time. That was my first kind of regional multi, 
you know, multi-facility role. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just... How many, how many buildings? So it was just an over a perfect, ge perfect transition. It, it, yeah. was, it was this, they had decided that they were going to break it up. Harborside said, okay, let's just get somebody who knows New Hampshire. They only had six buildings. They said, let's hire a regional vice president for uh, the six buildings. Well, it, it was um, Bedford all the way to Keene. Okay. So Bedford, Milford, Peterborough, Keene. And those so areas. So all along the southern, kind of the southern yeah. border. Yeah, and of course, my wife and I had bought a house about a year earlier in Durham. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, which is on the far eastern side. The other right. side. So you're so, going from east all the way right. to the Vermont border. Yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. So I did the job for six months to make sure I was going to make it. And they were happy with me and I was happy with them. And so that's when my wife and I moved and we've been in Bedford ever since. We moved to Bedford. Okay. Wow. So you had six centers initially. Six. Okay. Yeah. And so for how so what was it like letting having to let go of the of of owning a facility? Yeah. I, I mean of of managing a facility. It, it was I actually that was probably um uh the easiest uh move because I had already done sort of a couple other buildings at the same time so I could handle that and I was I was at a point where I was ready to not have my own building. I almost didn't even really want to do it anymore. Okay. So I was really, really okay with it. Yeah. You know? Why, why, this, what was, what was it that you were kind of like, I kind of feel like, yeah, I hope this doesn't come across um, in the wrong way as, as, as like arrogant or anything. I think it was more that I just felt like I had kind of done it now already three times and fixed buildings and got them to these great places. And I kind of figured it out mm -hmm. and I was just ready to take on some, different challenges i just felt like i got it down you know okay. I, I just really didn't have to do it anymore at, at the same time when i took this role as the regional vice president with harborside there was already this well-established regional team and i walked into the room and i could tell i was dealing with the same thing that they were all looking at me and they're like who is this who's this young guy because yeah. i took that role when i was 29 yeah I was 29 and I just walked, you know, and I walked in and had, had replaced um, somebody who was going on, on to a different company and he had been in the business for probably 30 years. And so I think they were like, you know, it's sort of like the same thing, which is why I, I always kept saying to myself and somebody taught me that it was probably my father was let's just always stay humble, stay humble, just listen and learn and respect people and, you know, and and from all levels of the organization, be the same to everybody. And I stuck with that, and I still do, and I think it helps. Hopefully you saw that, you know, when we were walking around, that mm -hmm. I just talked to everybody. It's not about titles, and, you you know, you that's just really what you do. Yeah. So, so initially you were, in, for Harborside, you were in charge of just the six buildings in New Hampshire, but eventually mm -hmm. you had a larger portfolio. I did, yeah, yeah. So we got New Hampshire rocking and rolling and really improved systems and we put in all like the company policies and procedures and we got everybody aligned towards the same same goals and really got into a real positive recognition environment. People were really feeling good. Turnover improved. People were staying with the company and ultimately the bottom line grew substantially and so they were having a lot of challenges in uh, massachusetts and rhode island harborside was and so my boss I remember when he came and talked to me and took me out to to this dinner and and basically said you know we'd like you to take over mass and rhode island and you know and that was i was petrified i was I was really scared because I'd never operated in a different state. I only knew New Hampshire. Yeah. That was a big, that was a big move. And why is that important? It's just. I mean, aside from physical yeah, distance. What, yeah. It? It's just, there's so many cultural differences and they're all great. You know, it's not like any is better than the other. There's just so much more to learn in different states. You know, you've got, um, you know, New Hampshire doesn't have big 
cities. It doesn't have Boston and Worcester and, you know, and, and, uh, Rhode Island. It was right outside of Providence and you've got different culturals. We had a building that was a lot of, you know, Portuguese. We had a building that was, um, a lot of, um, Haitian. We had, um, different, um, different arrangements, buildings in mass. A handful of them were, um, unionized. I hadn't experienced anything around unions and, you know, relationships and union negotiations and potential strike preparations and, you know, relationships. And then you've got the whole reimbursement system. So you have to learn how does Medicaid reimbursement work in Providence? How does Medicaid reimbursement work in Mass versus New mm-hmm. Hampshire? And Because Medicaid, for folks who don't understand, Medicaid is a state Medicaid level state level program. That's right. So it's going to be different depending it's on the all state. Different. All different. And then different. regulation as well, right? Yeah, the yeah. There's not, not as much. much okay. As much. There's some little, little, funny little things like you know reporting procedures and different expectations, but you can figure those out relatively quickly. But um, and then the other difference is is just really knowing your markets and you know. New Hampshire, I could, I could call the CEO of Parkland Medical Center in the hospital and go at breakfast with him twice a month. I could call even, you know, Catholic Medical Center and we could get together once a month and have lunch. You're not calling Mass General and, (laughs) and, you know, even Rhode Island Hospital and getting, (laughs) and getting breakfast. It doesn't, it's, you're a, you're a real little fish. Yeah. In some of those states and some of those markets, so it was a huge adjustment for me. Okay. Huge adjustment. How did your leadership style have to change, kind of, as you expanded that the number of of facilities you were overseeing, yeah. and kind of having moved away from actually leading a facility to just leading the leaders of facilities? Yeah. How did you? How did your leadership evolve? Definitely, it's kind of a simple answer, but it was just focusing so much more on leadership, on my team on my leadership team all of a sudden i went from six buildings to 16 i think was the first move maybe it was like 18 or something but and all of a sudden i've got 18 direct reports and i have a whole entire regional partner team that also reported to me which was probably six people you know therapy nurse you know all that so i had a 24 direct reports i could have like six buildings and say we have um we have a census and a revenue problem at a building. I, I, I could go in there and spend a day and, and sit with the administrator and develop a plan, really focus on census and have a whole plan. And then I, I could monitor that. Not as easy when you have eight, 18 of them. It was more that, okay, now I got to really focus on, I need to make sure I, I have the best administrator running each building. And it's hard because you can't just walk in and say, okay, yeah, you know, you're not going to make it. All of a sudden you have like a mass exodus. You can't do that either. So you have to have that whole like sort of assessment time to really assess people and get to know them and teach them and develop them. And, and then you figure out, you know, what do you have for a team? So definitely I'm a big adjustment while at, at, at the same time I had to educate myself, as I said earlier, on all the different different markets states and, and markets stuff, and everything yeah. else just kind of figure all that out at the same time yeah because you have to i mean if so if you had a, a a facility that is servicing a particular population like you were mentioning mm-hmm. some uh, uh, some ethnic ethnic population it's a different there are different expectations is that where you yeah you know and, absolutely and yeah. a different way of marketing and convincing people that this is the facility you want to come to right right yeah okay yeah absolutely and also not just residents and patients, but also staff. Okay, sure. You know? Yeah, if you're drawing from the same right. community for exactly. your staff, it's yeah. a different, yeah, different when I expectations. Would... So let me let me fast forward a little bit. You so you were at Harborside, um, expanded your 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 area of, of responsibility. Then Harborside was acquired by Sunbridge. Yep. In 2007, you got an even larger portfolio of, of yep. facilities. Right. And then Sunbridge was was acquired by Genesis in right. 2012. So yes. kind of. Uh, so that's when you came to actually work for Genesis, who, who's who you work right, for today. Right. 
Um, so what was that yeah. like going through this kind of series yeah. of scary, acquisitions? And scary. What's... Yeah, so it's, so it's funny. So I actually kind of joke around where I say that I'm a cat and I have nine lives because so far I've, I've been through probably, you know, with these acquisitions that now <laughs> I've been through three. So I'm uh-huh. like, okay, so if we keep getting acquired, I must have six <laughs> left because I keep surviving okay. these acquisitions because I have been through where, through all these, Harborside to Sun, Sun son to genesis i've i've seen close co-workers and friends get get laid off and yeah. not not keep their positions and and um so at genesis i technically have a tenure today because through the acquisitions you didn't quit or leave so they keep your original date so i technically can say that i have been at genesis for 17 years but i haven't right you know i've been with them for seven years but it's it's a it's total. You have to open your mind and to be you know to learn what their culture is and company culture, values and missions and everything else, and get to know people and give them a chance. You know that's what we're, that's really what I've learned is, and it's also scary because you want to make sure that you're going to make it, yeah. and so so it's a lot of that that you have to. I felt every time that I, w- I was starting over and that I, I had to prove myself again and, and I had to develop relationships and get to know people again in a way that sticks to my values where I'm not going to brown nose and kiss up, you know, here to my new company, but just show them, show them what I'm about and get to know them and hopefully it all works out. So you were a regional vice president when for these two acquisitions yeah. up to about 25 facilities. Right. And then in 2012 was this when were you promoted to senior vice president? So no, I so I was with Genesis. Genesis bought us in 2012. Okay, so this was a little later. I was still an RVP with Genesis, had to prove myself again, and then at the end of 2015 I was then promoted to um, senior VP. So, so it took me, uh, 13, 14, 15, and it took me about three years to kind of make my mark at Genesis. And, and then I got this opportunity. So you are, and this is VP. what you are, you are a senior VP for operations at Genesis for New England. Yeah. And you oversee 110 centers. 110 buildings. Wow. Now. That's a lot of buildings. I mean, I I, I can wrap my head around 16 buildings. 25 starts to stretch my limits of my imagination. 110 is kind of like, I don't know. So how do you, what's that like? As crazy as it is, it doesn't change a lot. It's because it's still the same where now I have a regional vice president team. So I have nine direct reports. Okay. You know, they each have, you know, a certain amount of buildings, do the math, but they... So, and I have built that team already to, I have a really strong regional VP team and that is on my bus, but it's funny. You really start to see as you, as you go into each level, you almost feel in your own way, less empowered. You can't influence as much anymore. Mm. You know, it's more high level. It's, it's really high level around, you know, what, what what I call kind of our kind of major operational areas. It's what I call like the five C's. So I have, you know, clinical, clinical services and quality, census development, cash collections, controlling labor. It's our number one expense in order to run the business. So controlling, all meaning labor. controlling labor expense. Yeah, which oh, gets into a whole other, how do you do that? It's you know, turnover and good hiring, you know, retention and staffing to budget, you know, mm-hmm. all all kinds of different things. And then really just the overall customer experience, customer satisfaction. And so it kind of changes where I can't get into the details at a specific building anymore, you know. Now, I have a handful that I have to, you know, I run my sort of Sean list. Okay. And one does not want to be on the Sean list, I assume. No. Not necessarily, <laughs> right? Right. It's and I, you know, my goal is is to get them on a project plan, get them turned around, and then we kind of graduate them off off of the Sean list. Okay. You know, that's kind of what we want to do. Yeah. But I've learned that you always are going to have a Sean list. Sure. 
that you know that's the business it's what we talked about earlier where it's so cyclical you're always gonna have a little but getting back to your question it's more of that it's just what you have to prioritize and what you want baseline implemented in every center what what i have to have in every center and then more of trying to help my rvps around their specific challenges and their portfolio what we have going on how standardized are facilities in the genesis system yeah how, how much is I realize the physical buildings are going to look differently, but I mean, how much sure, is the sure, management sure. kind of standardized down through the system? Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. I think um, it's funny because my boss, our um, chief operating officer, the COO, is doing a great job. He he is really focused on getting Genesis into a much more national model, standardized model mm-hmm. of really trying to say that there are like certain baseline expectations and processes and systems that we should have in every building. And so a quick example of that. Sure, sure. Um, A a simple example. Well, the easy one is clinical. You have to do that anyways, just because of our own liability. It's, you know, if if we're not following our standard processes around how we handle IVs or what we do for a new admission assessment. Everything, everything a nurse asks a family and a new patient. We have to have that standardized because we want to cover everything, make sure that there's no stone unturned and that we capture everything that the patient will need clinically. Maybe a different one that's more company kind of choice and optional is census development. Let's just say, to try to build a business, make sure that every bed is full. Mm-hmm. We have a sort. We are implementing a um, a key account management process. So we every building has the same tool and has their kind of key local contacts that they need to be reaching out and have relationships with. So like hospitals to and- help. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Hospitals, it's just the points of referral, kind of the rotaries, the okay. you know, like the chambers of commerce, and just having those kind of relationships. Okay. So okay. that's kind of an example of what we want standardized. At the same time, and that's the job of the local administrator to make those contacts. Absolutely. Okay. absolutely. So there's an so there's an external facing kind of function to it being an administrator. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's a whole piece. Yeah, that we didn't even get into. That's really kind of kind of the sales and marketing. And you are, you look at nursing homes. Not to get off track, but in most towns, they are probably one of the largest employers in the town, mm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, figure you know, like your normal mom and pop town, whatever. You know, I mean, if you're a hundred bed facility, which is our average, and you know, you're employing a hundred people in that town, that's that's pretty big. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's not Manchester or something, but right, it's right, you know, but, a, but small most, town, Claremont. You know, right. you are a pretty big employer. That's yeah. right, and so you you should be out there as as a community leader and knowing people and being involved. Okay. Absolutely. Do you have metrics, kind of a dashboard of some sort that you track? I mean, I would think at All your that level. is definitely um, company standardized. We have every report that you could possibly imagine for mm-hmm. all those areas that I just mentioned around yeah. clinical and census and cash and controlling labor and customer satisfaction. We have reports for everything. Is that how everything. you how you manage your 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 facilities? That I mean, because yes, at a high not, level, not, yeah, yes, at a high level, it's typically you know how you compare versus versus your sister centers, how you compare versus you know your budgets and your targets, mm-hmm. and um, and and industry standards that you know that piece too. And it's funny you say that because a quote that I say all the time to people, and it and it drives them crazy. I'm in jest. I always say, the numbers don't lie. <laughs> the numbers don't lie. Right. So if you're, if if your census report says that you're running eighty five percent occupancy, mm-hmm. and your county runs ninety one percent, and your budget is eighty nine percent, what's what are these numbers telling us? Right. We have opportunity to grow census. We're not. You know, we're doing something wrong here or, or we have opportunity here. 
Right. So, I mean, strategically speaking, or broadly speaking, it seems like this ought to be like a bonanza time for long-term care. We, uh, I mean, the population is aging. I mean, particularly in New England, we have some of the oldest, like per capita, oldest states. New Hampshire and Maine are two of the top, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, it seems like most most long-term care organizations I'm aware of are really struggling financially. Mm. Is uh, is that your observation? And and why would that be? Yes, I would. I would say. High level, I think we are just starting to take the corner as an industry, not saying Genesis, as, as an industry where we feel that there is going to be a real pickup in demand, in census. We really, studies will show that we kind of hit this sort of like the Great Depression, you know, where it really was at sort of bottom and that really 2000, 2019, more so 2020, we're really going to start to see that there's going to be more and more and more need as far as our services. It's two issues with that, right? It sounds great. It's like if you were, all of a sudden, if you were whatever, if you sold, sold uh, I don't know, peanuts, and all of a sudden you heard there's going to be all these elephants are coming, right? You know, <laughs> right, that, you right. know yeah. that's wonderful. Um, but... So here's the thing, is what they can pay for the peanuts is, that's the challenge. So we talked about it a little bit earlier. So yeah. Medicaid reimbursement, that's, that's, that's where we really are in the sector. That's where we're having our biggest challenge, where it's just, it's, it, it is, it's not adequate. Now, not in every state, but most states, it's not adequate to, Never mind just try to, you know, never mind actually trying to make a little bit of a profit, but actually even just to cover what it costs to take care of a patient on a daily basis. You know, Don't Massachusetts has an example. Just yeah. use Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, hold on. Let me kind of get back to that. Yeah. And so what the other part is, so that's kind of one is really the reimbursement. And then two is that we have a significant in most markets – Northern New England, you mentioned Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont. Mm -hmm. We have a major staffing crisis. We are short of licensed nurses, RNs, and LPNs. They're not there. <laughs> they don't exist. And also with certified nursing assistants and therapists. Mm -hmm. Physical therapists, occupational therapists, definitely speech therapists, caregivers, Caregivers, we have an we have an absolute staffing crisis. So, what does that mean? We have to pay more. It's expensive. You know, you have to be able to pay for those folks in order to be able to compete and get people from other places. Right. And also, in the meanwhile, you have to pay for premium labor, contract labor, traveling, traveling nurses. You know, we have nurses right now that are in Vermont that are from tech. You know, are from Florida or are from Texas that we pay a premium to to be there for you got to house months. them as well as housing pay their, all right, that kind yeah. of stuff so and it's, it's a premium yeah so it's almost it's kind of like it's like a perfect storm because people are going to be coming or or people want to come are going to need the care and but one our costs aren't aren't being covered to take care of them and two we don't have enough people to take care of them and so and so back. On the Medicaid state system, as an example, Massachusetts has been one of my number one focuses lately for the past couple months because it's budget time and they're getting ready to finalize a Massachusetts budget. And we've been putting a full court press on just educating politicians and talking to them. Their current system is our reimbursement is based on what our costs were. Mm -hmm. In 2007, 12, okay, so 12 years, years ago. Yeah. Do you know how much things are now <laughs> versus 12 years ago? Never mind paying for an RN right. or paying for a CNA. It's, it's absolute insanity. And so right. if you do the math, if, if they're paying us $50 a day for each patient less than it does to cover the costs, 
it's not rocket science. That's why you're seeing in Massachusetts all these buildings are closing. Yeah. Even at 2 2 or 3% inflation, which we've had low low inflation, mm-hmm. 12 years at 2% is a lot of it's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're spending a lot of time knocking on trying, trying to get and- creative around labor. Okay. That's the first thing. So yeah. how can we care for patients in in the best way but in different ways? How do we get into creating our own? And and so as an example, With training your own people. So, so we've started a whole entire Genesis curriculum to get people to come in, get paid to take the class and become a certified nursing assistant. And we'll actually pay you to take the class. And then once you pass your tests, it's a six week class. You get your CNA license and the, you know, you know, we give you a raise and then we give you an assignment and now you get a job and now you have a career. And so because if we sit there and, and just expect that every CNA is just going to walk through the door and just want to work for us, it's not going to happen. So we're trying to get, how can we get creative to try to actually create labor or think differently? And another example would be um, telemedicine. You know, that's something that we're really pushing for legislatively and in D.C., more kind of federal level to see how we can get creative. But for physician services, it's hard to find doctors who want to come in and and take care of our patients, never mind to be on call and get phone calls at 2 o'clock in the morning because somebody fell and had an accident or whatever, or we have a new admission coming in on Saturday night and we need a doctor to give us medication orders. So we are... We've signed up now with a company that does telemedicine. So we'll, so we have an iPad that's on each nursing station. And after five o'clock, if anything happens, you get on the iPad and you log in and now you have a doctor that's talking to you on the iPad. You know, you walk in and, and you meet the patient with the iPad and you, and the doctor interviews her and answers questions. And then the doctor tells the nurse what to do. Okay. Well, it's creative. Yeah, because that's a great example. I was going to ask you about technology and whether you were able to employ, if you're employing technology to try to offset some of the costs of labor in particular. Yeah. Well, one of the other examples is what I showed you when you saw the um, the electronic health record that was there with the nurse, you know, so getting rid of a lot of paper, which is very time consuming. So that's another example. But there's a lot out there. Yeah for technology you have to pay for it and it's kind of one of those things long-term care where 70 percent of you know your your revenue is medicaid you're not in a position where you can be affording the the state of the art technology that's brand new that'll help you get there so it's kind of you know like when you get like this new and exciting five fancy d flat screen television right it's always so expensive in that first year, right? And then all of a sudden, then there's a new one, and then that one is gets marked down by fifty yeah. percent. It's kind of kind of the world we're in, where even with the technology we have, it's probably or what we purchase, it's probably already behind. If you could kind of encapsulate your leadership philosophy, and what would it be? Ooh, boy, I think it's. Um, well, you probably heard it a lot today, mm-hmm. I think is really totally respectful, caring and compassionate, uh, you know, uh, work-life balance, very, very um, important, but clarity of expectations. So there's no surprises, recognition and celebrating and developing and coaching. And I think that's what people would say about me. And I think... I'm a big copycat person. In all honesty, I I do a lot of reading. And my favorite is, um, one of my favorites is um, Jack Welch. Okay. You know, and, and I just think he's brilliant and he's written a lot of really good stuff. And, and um, Got one in particular you'd want to recommend? Um, his book, Winning, Winning. Is, okay. is, Winning is a, um, it's one of those you can, it's kind of almost kind of like reference to like, you don't even have to sit there and read the whole book. He has different chapters of, of different leadership themes and challenges and things, you know, and 
he has this one chapter that, that's called Candor mm-hmm. and about General Electric when he was there and how he realized it just was not, they were wasting so much time because people were not transparent and people weren't candid and that productivity was down so much of it and things took so long because people just didn't just speak what they want. People didn't say what they needed to say and what they had to say. And that was a big one. But there's a thing that I always look at where he talks about this whole hiring of people and when you build your team. And I kind of alluded a little Mm -hmm. bit to it earlier around there's things that you can't teach. And he had this sort of, he had this kind of philosophy around that looking for people right away in the interview process and as you get to know them when you're selecting, it's people who come in and who have definite energy. Two, that they also show and that they have this way that they can energize others. Three was this, that they have a little bit of an edge, meaning that they will not they will not shy away from having to make tough decisions or having to have tough conversations with people. And then four was that they show passion, that they just have passion for, you know, for everything they do. And, but he tells this great story that he was like, but he still wasn't moving the needle along. Like it was getting a lot better because he was building a team with all those. But then he was on the plane. He tells a story about how, but let's talk about, so this particular staff member, and they have energy and they energize others, and he has an edge and he has passion, but his results still aren't there. And so then they figured it out that they had to add this fourth E, and it was the ability to execute, to actually cross the finish line. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was fascinating when I read it. And obviously, it totally stuck with me because that's when I have I have built my teams based on that. And um, people people have gotten better from my coaching of that. But there are people that just haven't worked out because they just they they just can't they couldn't cross the finish line on things. And it's amazing how much that's really helped to. Um, yield better outcomes it's just it's crazy so yeah i'm a big big fan of that book winning <laughs> all right well, we'll put yeah. a link to it up in the in the notes oh, great. um so let me uh let me let me close because i know you've got a meeting yeah to absolutely go to. yeah, yeah um, six minutes so in six minutes or less for a young person thinking about a career in healthcare, why long-term care yeah well, that's an easy one because I give the speech to now probably 14 or 15 UNH students when they apply for the internship. Um, because uh, when I started it three years ago, I had four people apply, I think. And then in the second year, we grew to 10. And then this past year, we had like 16 or 17. And I'm really excited about that because I think what's helped is, is that that the seniors who speak to the juniors about their internship experience, I think we've taken a lot of pride in um, Genesis with their experience. And I got an email actually today from one of the new interns who's already just really, really enjoying it. And, and she said, they're all like, I don't know if they're all Facebook or something, or I don't know, like they're all on something together and some of them are already talking about how bored they are and, and that they're stuck in a cubicle mm. and and she's like oh you know so far i've done this and i'm doing maintenance tomorrow and then i'm gonna go to social services and everyone's kind of like, oh that's awesome yeah. so i think that's really cool anyways i didn't really answer your question but i think it's what i tell them is is that it's this sort of we know what the stereotypes are it's not like it's not sexy on the surface it you know but Educate yourself on it, that it's not just this sort of, you know, little sweet little Myrtle who's in a rocking chair, who's working on her blanket and and the place smells like urine. That's really not what it is anymore. And I get into the everything I just talked to you about, all of the diversity and how every hour is different and the pace it goes at and all of the skills that you need to be successful at it, you know, with human resources and leadership and 
political science and you know sales and marketing and leadership everything that everything that we talked about and the opportunities that are are, are going to be out there my nephew is all excited about this hospital that you know, he's at right now great hope he continues with it and all that but i will say to him when i see him this weekend is how many hospitals are there out there how many hospital ceos are there versus how many nursing home administrators and even nursing home regional vice presidents are there do the math and and so the not saying that you can't make it as a hospital ceo but it's tougher it's hard it's hard to get there and a lot of hospital systems are going into a much more clinical leadership model now so you're seeing more like the physicians are becoming the ceo right, right. and so it's even that much harder right. and so i'm just encouraging them on if you get into a building, and I've talked to them about salaries, you know, like you can come in as an AIT, graduate from school, and and make you know fifty, sixty grand as an AIT. You get your first building, you could be making eighty to hundred grand in your first building, and and uh, you know, and then you keep growing, and the opportunities are endless. It's not about the money, but I think with some of them it is, you know, sure. and so you explain all that, that you can have like this real rewarding, fast paced work environment that can be at the same time you can make, make a really good living. So I think it's working around getting more people involved and getting more applicants. And, uh, we've hired a lot of, a lot of folks. I'm excited about, um, you know, what we're doing with some of these college partnerships. It's pretty cool. Well, we appreciate all the work you're doing with our students. So yeah. thank you. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about your career. And, and I've really enjoyed learning about more about Genesis. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.